Welcome to today's reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald for Thursday, February 9th, 2023. I'm your reader, Ann Coke Gare, and here's our first story. Man found dead after downtown garage fire. Dubuque firefighters, there's a photo, Dubuque firefighters battle a Wednesday morning garage blaze in the alley north of West 14th Street between Iowa Street and Central Avenue. Officials say one man was found dead in the garage. Circumstances of death caused and cause of fire unknown. This is by Eric Hogstrom. One person was found dead when firefighters responded to a blaze Wednesday morning in downtown Dubuque. Dubuque police and fire departments responded at 8.23 a.m. when a fire was reported in a garage near West 14th and Iowa Streets. A 911 caller advised that someone was inside the garage, according to a press release. The garage at the rear of 1428 and 1430 Iowa Street was on fire, said Dubuque Police Department Lieutenant Brendan Welsh. Dubuque firefighters extracted one deceased subject from the garage. Welsh told the Telegraph Herald Wednesday afternoon that police have a belief of who the deceased man is and have spoken with the family, but his name has not been released yet. We're not releasing his name for two reasons. First, the family has not, been, has not contacted everybody, and secondly, due to his injuries. We want to make sure that we're 100% definitive in identifying him, Welch said. That'll probably take a little, t- little time more with the investigators, the family, and medical examiners. He said authorities did not know the circumstances of the death or the cause of the fire yet. We cannot confirm whether anyone was residing in the garage or not, Welch said. When the fire department forced open the door of the garage, they found him deceased immediately inside the door. Whether the fire caused the death or the person died prior to the fire, we don't know. His cause of death will take time and assistance from the state medical examiner's office. Fire Chief Amy Scheller said there hasn't been a fatal fire in Dubuque in the last five years. Seven fire department units responded to the blaze. Gray smoke poured out of the garage as the firefighters worked. Brown furniture sat in a pile outside the garage door. There were hoarding conditions inside that garage, Scheller said, noting that the contents in the crammed structure were burning. Firefighters were pulling contents out of the building, but there were already contents out on the outside of the building. Firefighters are continuing to watch the building because of the materials inside. A layer of thick white foam filled the alley outside the garage. Firefighters' boots and cuffs were splattered with foam. On tricky fires like this, firefighters will use that foam, Scheller said. It embeds itself inside the burning materials a little bit better than water. While firefighters fought the blaze, a small City of Dubuque public works truck scattered road salt on the adjacent roadway. Temperatures were in the lower 30s at the time. The weather is a challenge for firefighters with the icy conditions, Scheller said. She said the fire was contained to the garage. There was no extension beyond that building. Scheller said there were no reported injuries among the firefighters. Police investigators worked 
the scene, too. Police Chief Jeremy Jensen conferred with Scheller and plainclothes police officers surveyed the scene, took notes and spoke with the firefighters and other people within the taped-off perimeter of the fire scene. Oftentimes, when there is a death involved in any kind of case, our investigators will assist, Welch said. He said among the police investigators at the scene were those cross-trained as arson investigators. The fire marshals are trained at looking at the sources of the fire and causes of the fire. Welch said, our investigators will help the fire marshal by speaking with witnesses, checking the traffic cameras, and doing a lot of the investigation not involved in the science side of it. Investigators from the state of Iowa Fire Marshal's office are also involved. Anyone with information about the fire should call police at 563-589-4415. Anonymous tips can also be submitted at the cityofdubuque.org backslash ID4PD. Simmons plans expansion with 22.5 million warehouse. Dubuque Dubuque developer would lease the new building to the pet food manufacturer, which plans to add at least 10 jobs, by John Cruz. A development group plans to construct a 22.5 million warehouse and lease it to one of Dubuque's largest employers, which will add at least 10 more jobs in conjunction with the project. Seipel Warehouse, LLC, intends to buy 15.5 acres from the city and construct a 190,000-square-foot warehouse near Simmons Pet Foods Manufacturing Facility at 501 Seipel Road. Once completed, the warehouse will be leased to the pet food manufacturer. Dubuque-based company Gronin will lead the development and construction of the building on the site. Randy Schmidt, Chief Financial Officer at Gronin said his company is one of several partner investors that make up Seipel Warehouse, LLC. The company is currently negotiating a long-term lease agreement with Simmons for the use of the warehouse. We partnered with Simmons before when they first came to Dubuque, so this is just continuing that partnership, Schmidt said. Simmons Pet Foods started production in Dubuque in the summer of 2021 after moving into the 275,000-square-foot manufacturing facility originally built by Flex Steel Industries. It started a second pet food production line in the site last summer. City documents state the company has invested more than $80 million of its manufacturing site at its manufacturing site. Plans call for construction on the new warehouse to begin in April and be completed by the end of the year. When contacted by the Telegraph Herald, Simmons Pet Food declined to provide comment on the project beyond what was stated by Chad Morris, Senior Vice President Supply Chain for the company, in a press release provided by Gronin. Simmons Pet Food is continually looking for ways to improve operations to better serve our customers, Morris said. We are proud to be part of the Dubuque community and in partner with Gronin and Dubuque Property Group again. Dubuque Property Group assisted Simmons in determining the site for the planned warehouse. This week, Dubuque City Council members voted unanim un unanimously
to schedule a public hearing on February 20th for a proposed development agreement with Seipel Warehouse. Under that agreement, the city would sell Seipel Warehouse at a 15.5-acre parcel of land, about 9.9 acres of which are deemed usable, directly west of Tri-State Quality Metals, location for one million four hundred eighty-nine thousand five hundred. About seven hundred and forty-four thousand five hundred of that purchase cost will be reimbursed back to Seipel Warehouse through an acquisition grant provided by the city. The Tri-State Quality Metals property is situated between the Simmons Manufacturing Facility and the proposed site of the warehouse. However, Simmons owns about 12.6 acres of additional land just south of the warehouse property as well. The development agreed agreement would also provide Seipel Warehouse within 10 years of tax increment financing rebates for the warehouse project, which Dubuque Economic Development Director Jill Connors said would likely amount to about $4.3 million. Simmons has been a great addition to our economy and our industrial park, Connors said. The fact that they continue to expand is great news. This development agreement would require that Simmons create the equivalent of 10 more full-time jobs by December 1st, 2024, on top of the equivalent of 271 such jobs that the company agreed to create in a development agreement with the city approved in 2020. If the required number of jobs are not added, Connor said Seipel Warehouse will be required to pay back a, a prorated amount of the acquisition grant. Reached by, Telegraph, Herald, reached by the Telegraph Herald City Council member Rick Jones said he supports the project and the proposed development agreement, arguing that the city should do what it can to support continued job growth in the community. It's another step in developing out the area out there, Jones said. They seem like a good employer, so I'm happy to support them. Council member Danny Sprank echoed similar sentiments regarding the city supporting the manufacturer. Simmons has been a good partner since they came to our community, Sprank said. They're going to create more jobs with this, so it makes sense for us to support that. Police ID man fatally shot in Dubuque. Lonnie E. Burns, 31, died after he was found with several gunshot wounds Tuesday in the 700 block of Romberg Avenue. Police on Wednesday released the name of the man who was fatally shot Tuesday in Dubuque. Lonnie E. Burns, 31, of Dubuque, died after sustaining, quote, several gunshot wounds, end quote according to police. His body has been sent to the state medical examiner's office for in Ankeny for an autopsy. A press release also offered more details on the events surrounding the shooting. Officers responded at about 12.45 a.m. Tuesday to the 700 block of Romberg Avenue after receiving report, a report of gunshots and found burns. Officers attempted to life-save me- attempted life-saving measures on Burns before he was taken to Mercy One Dubuque Medical Center, where he died of his injuries. The release states that the ensuing investigation found that there was a disturbance involving several persons in the yard adjacent to 711 Romberg Avenue, during which a gun was fired. This was not 
a random act of violence, the release states, researched Rather, I'm sorry, reached by the Telegraph Herald, Lieutenant Brendan Welch said Wednesday, it appears that the during the disturbance, Burns was intentionally shot. Nobody else was hit. He said police are still working to determine how many people were involved in the disturbance as well as their identities and relationship to each other. Police said that after the shooting, participants apparently fled the area on foot. In several directions following the incident, investigators are actively reviewing camera systems, speaking with witnesses, and conducting other related follow-up. No arrests have been reported in relation to the shooting. Police would like to review surveillance camera footage from anyone living near where the shooting occurred. Those with footage should call Lieutenant Ted McClemon at 563-589-4439 or investigator Isaiah Hoff at 563-589-4429. The investigators also can be reached via email at tmcclimo at cityofdubuque.org or ihoff at cityofdubuque.org. Anyone with information about the shooting should call police at 563-589-4415. Individuals can also call Crime Stoppers at 563-588-0714 and can qualify for a monetary award for information leading to an arrest. Anonymous tips can also be submitted at cityofdubuque.org backslash ID for P.D. B.S.O. plan to digitize John Williams' radio concerts almost complete. The Associated Press, Boston. An effort to digitize more than 200 Boston Pops radio broadcasts conducted by John Williams from 1979 until 1991 is almost complete, the Boston Symphony Orchestra announced Wednesday, Williams' 91st birthday. The project to preserve 233 live radio broadcasts that were recorded on 256 one-quarter-inch reel-to-reel analog tapes that were becoming increasingly fragile and in danger of chemical deterioration was funded by grants totaling $24,000 from the Grammy Museum and the Council on Library and Information Resource. The recordings chronicle Williams' work with guest performers from a broad spectrum of the entertainment industry. Classical artists like Yo-Yo Ma and James Galway, popular stars such as Joan Baez, Ray Charles, Broadway stars like Carol Channing and Joel Gray, jazz musicians including Wynton Marsalis and Sarah Vaughn, and comedic talents such as Victor Borg. The concerts were originally broadcast locally before being distributed to radio stations nationwide. Some feature the first concert arrangements of many of the Oscar and Grammy-winning Williams film scores. The BSO has completed the digitization process and is currently creating access files for public use. Bellevue Council okays first reading of ordinance for speed cameras. 
After citizens raised concerns, city officials decided to act on slowing down rivers entering t- drivers rather entering town on US 52 by Elizabeth Kelsey, Bellevue, Iowa. The city of Bellevue plans to install two automated cameras along highway the highway through town to issue speeding fines. Bellevue City Council members this week voted 5 to 0 to approve the first reading of an ordinance for the installation of cameras at the north and south ends of town along US 52, which becomes Riverview Drive through Bellevue. City Administrator Abby Skirveth said the city has sought for some time to improve safety on the north end of Bellevue near Offshore Resort after citizens raised concerns about pedestrian safety on a bicycle and walking trail along the highway. There's a fair amount of development that's occurred along that stretch of the road, and we've been concerned because of the bike path that's adjacent to the highway and the amount of pedestrian traffic we have up there, said City Council Member Tom Roth after the meeting. We like to slow people down in that neighborhood. Scriveth said city and county officials worked with the Iowa Department of Transportation to see about lowering the speed limit from 55 miles per hour to 45 miles per hour in that area. But a DOT speed study showed that the average speed in that area was 62 miles per hour. They said before they would even consider reducing the speed limit to 45 per hour, We have to get the average speed back down to 55 miles per hour, Scriveth said. The camera in that area would be installed across the road from Bellevue Sand and Gravel Company, 29427 US 52, while the camera on the south end of town would be installed near Borman's Neighborhood Pit Stop, 802 South Riverview Drive. When you come across the railroad viaduct there, you drop into Bellevue rather quickly, Roth said. There's kind of a nasty curve in the road there, and I know from driving it that if you come in too fast, that can really be a problem. Scribsa said Sensi's Gasto, the third-party vendor with which the city plans to contract, would own, maintain, operate, and help install the two cameras, along with signs altering motorists to their presence. Sensi's Gasto would receive $35 for each ticketed speeding violation from the cameras. The city council has proposed that any revenue generated by the city from speeding tickets issued as a result of the cameras being deposited into the public safety fund to support the city's police, fire, and emergency medical services, as well as road and trail improvements. The last thing we want is to be accused of trying to make money a money grab, Roth said. Quite honestly, it isn't about the revenue. I don't want to write tickets to folks, but people need to get slowed down. That's the bottom line. A Bellevue Police Department officer would review each violation flagged by the camera to determine whether the a ticket should be issued, and citizens would have the opportunity to contest a ticket. Contest a ticket. Scrivza said the city council must approve three readings of the ordinance before it takes effect, but members may vote to waive the third reading. If approved, city officials hope to have the cameras operational by this spring. 
news in brief, Iowa Supreme Court will not review Dubuque murder case. The Iowa Supreme Court recently denied the application for further review of a Dubuque man's murder conviction and sentence. Fonte C. Bulow, 31, was appealing his second-degree murder conviction. He was sentenced to 50 years in prison for fatally stabbing Samantha J. Link, 21, of Piosta, Iowa, at his Dubuque residence on March 31, 2017. The court appeals heard oral arguments in Bulow's case in November and filed an opinion in December upholding the conviction. Bulow's application for further review was submitted to the Iowa Supreme Court on December 22nd. In his appeal, Bulow's attorneys argued that there was plenty of evidence pre- presented at Bulow's 2021 trial to show that Link stabbed herself, causing her death. Bulow's first Bulo first was found guilty of second-degree murder during a 2018 trial, but in 2020, the Iowa Supreme Court upheld a court of appeals ruling vacating Bulow's prior conviction and granted him a new trial. The court of appeals ruled at the time that, that records on Link's mental health sug- struggles should not have been excluded as evidence in the initial trial, and those records were central to Bulow's 2021 retrial. Prosecutors argued that Bulow killed Link during an argument after a night out drinking, while Bulow's attorneys maintained Link stabbed herself after Bulow broke up with her. Jurors convicted Bulow of the killing. Chart-topping blues artist to perform this summer in Dubuque. A blues artist who has sold millions of albums will perform with his band this summer in Dubuque. The Kenny Wayne Shepherd Band will take the stage on June 22nd at Five Flags Theater, according to an online announcement from the venue. Shepherd's Band will be supported by King Solomon Hicks on a show that begins at 7 p.m. Beginning when he was 16, Shepard has forged a 20-year career. Nine of Shepard's albums have topped the blues charts, and his rock rock hits include Slow Ride, Blue on Black, and Was. Tickets cost $70 to $100. Visit http colon backslash backslash bit dot ly backslash 3JQJBLK for ticket and other information. On to the opinion section. China, a major threat to U.S., resorts to balloon espionage by J. Ambrose, Tribune News Service. On top of genocide of Chinese Muslims, crushing Hong Kong's democracy and plans to take over enterprising and happily independent Taiwan, the super-ambitious, totalitarian, morally misinformed Chinese Communist Party has been coming after the United States in every way imaginable. Intellectual property? They steal it. Trade deals? They cheat. Now comes something less likely to be imagined, a balloon. More suited for war preparation than what you'd have at a kid's birthday party. This Chinese object was white, gas-filled, and 11 miles high in the sky. It was unmanned, relied on solar power, and was something like 120 foot feet tall as well as 120 feet wide. It had gobs of high-tech devices, 
across its bottom, enabling to it to gather strategically expedient information from military bases on the ground and around the country on a several-day excursion. The findings likely meant to help facilitate a U.S. finale were where immediately transmitted back to China, whose spokesman said it was a civilian weather balloon blown off course. This explanation would have you believe it somehow accidentally ended up where bunches of nuclear missiles were kept and then over other military bastions, the wind showing off its cleverness. Some say President Joe Biden should have blown the thing to pieces before it entered the country, or at least early on after it entered prompting a reply that the debris could then have hit the innocent. He held back on a jet-launching successful mission until the balloon was departing over a stretch of the Atlantic Ocean, which was soon filled with explosion litter and lots of workers doing their watery best to retrieve enough of it to figure out more details. Know this about bulging balloons, that even if they haven't seemed significant enough to draw front-page attention for a long time, they have met military needs as far back as our own Civil War. The first news of this most recent U.S. sighting did not come from government officials who were keeping a close eye on the 30 to 40-mile-an-hour object, but from astonished, sky-gazing, video-inclined folks in Montana wondering what this moon pretender was up to. Answers of the sort already mentioned were soon enough forthcoming. It may have helped protect Biden from criticism for laggard action to learn there were three balloon invasions during the Trump administration, except the balloons entered and left the continent so quickly as to amount to nothing much. What the New York Times tells us makes this recent visitation far more disturbing, mainly that recent developments have rendered these balloons amazing spy spy masters of a kind that can make a big difference. Of course, balloons or no balloons, China has spied on America with vengeance for years. Once digitally collecting scads of personal data on 22 million federal employees, Yes, 22 million. It has used computers to rob our businesses and steal information from federal agencies, and naturally enough uses satellites as as instruments. Satellites, however, are too far away and move too fast to be the equal of balloons, some experts say. America spies, too, but it's laxity laxity about China was revealed in a PBS story a while back about the United States recklessly and illegally giving China an incredible battery breakthrough, hugely important for the future. Right now, Chinese in in America are buying vast amounts of American agricultural land and to help feed their own people while harder times could deprive Americans of food they need. Some of that land also happens to be close to military bases, raising questions about military interference. The sure enough truth about China today is that its leaders want to control the world, consider us a foremost obstacle, and deserve loads of diplomatic attention. Even though Secretary of State Anthony Blinken rightly postponed a planned visit because of betrayal of our sovereignty and international law, 
We must also be smart, prepare for the worst, and beat China at its own nasty games. Modernize China, population 1 billion is almost surely the biggest threat we face in the world today. You are listening to the Dubuque Telegraph Herald on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Ann Coke Gayer. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, give us a call at 515-243-6833. And now we'll turn to today's obituaries. Gary R. Stadel of Shapville, Illinois. Gary Ray Stadel, quote, corn, 72 from Shapville, Illinois, passed away peacefully at home on February 7th, 2023, surrounded by his loved ones. Gary was born in Freeport, Illinois, to Raymond L. and Mary Ann Wormer Stadel. On June 12, 1950, Gary grew up on the farm in Shapville with his parents and four siblings. He attended one of the one-room schoolhouse where he was second in his class. There were only two. Until they transitioned to Scales Mound School, where he would meet the love of his life, Carla Skaggs. They reunited in marriage on July 15, 1972, and would spend the next 50-plus years together. Along the way, they were blessed with three amazing sons, Ryan, Paul, and Mark. Gary learned so much from his own father at a young age and was devoted to his greatest passion in life, farming. Farming was more than a job to Gary. Second to his family, it was his everything. He instilled this love for farming and hard work in each of his sons. Many fond memories were made by all that got to experience hanging out in the barn drinking Pabst, and cow skiing. Gary also had a love for hunting, which his sons inherited as well. He loved everything John Deere and was always very generous with everyone he knew. He would offer a helping hand, a loan, a cold beer, or whatever anyone needed. Later in life, his greatest joy was his grandchildren. Sneaking them suckers always put a smile on his face. Gary leaves behind his wife, Carla, his three sons, Ryan, Kara, Paul, Maggie, and Mark, Tara, his seven grandchildren, Paisley, Ian, Ezra, Finn, Asher, Wesley, and Bo, his siblings, Sharon Webster, Deb Walters, Donna, Keith Gerlich, his in-laws, Tana, Dick Thole, Dale, Donata, Skaggs, and Sherry Stadel. He was preceded in death by his parents, Raymond and Mary Ann, and, and Carla's parents, Lyle and Francis, his brother Don, brothers-in-law Ronnie Webster and Randy Walters. There will be a visitation in remembrance of Gary on Friday, February 10th, 2023, from 4 to 7 p.m. at the Miller-Steinke Funeral Home in Scales Mound, Illinois. Honoring Gary's request, there will be a private family service at the farm, at a later date. The family would like to extend a thank you to all the physicians and nurses at MHLC in Darlington Unity Point Health Meritor 
Madison, and FHN Hospice. The family would also like to extend a sincere thank you to all of Gary's devoted friends, especially Marty Cleary and Jim Pop. Online condolences may be left for the family at www.millerfhed.com. Robert E. Smirkina, Robert E. Smirkina, 87 of the Dubuque, of Dubuque, died on Thursday, on Tuesday, rather, February 7th, 2023. Visitation will be held from 9.30 to 11 o'clock a.m. Saturday, February 11th at Church of the Nativity, which services will follow. Egghoff, Siegert, and Casper Funeral Home, 2569 John F. Kennedy Road, in assisting the family. Brenda L. Carper of Manchester, Iowa. Brenda Brenda L. Carper, 62, of Manchester, died on Tuesday, February 7, 2023. A celebration of life will be held from 2 to 6 p.m. Sunday, February 12th at Delaware County Community Center in Manchester. Leonard Mueller Filler Funeral Home of Manchester is assisting the family. Norman G. Drew, Platteville, Wisconsin. Norman G. Drew, 87, of Platteville, died on Thursday, January 26, 2023. A celebration of life will be held at a later date. Martin Schwartz Funeral Home of Lancaster is assisting the family. Jacqueline M. Steinke. Jacqueline M. Steinke, 56, of Dubuque, died on Sunday, February 5, 2023. A celebration of life will be held at a later date. Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory, 2595 Rockdale Road, is assisting the family. Dennis A. Bennett. Dennis A. Bennett, 80, of Dubuque, died on Tuesday, February 7, 2023. Private graveside services will be held. Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory, 2595 Rockdale Road, is assisting the family. Dayton W. Miller, Guttenberg, Iowa. Dayton W. Miller, 76, of Guttenberg, died on Saturday, February 4, 2023. Services will be held at a later date. Morris Funeral Home of Guttenberg is assisting the family. Barbara Furlong, 73, of Dubuque, died on Tuesday, February 7, 2022. A celebration of life will be held on Sunday, March 26. Egelhoff, Seigert, and Casper Funeral Home and Crematory, 2569 John F. Kennedy Road, is assisting the family. Funeral Services. Mateo F. Chrysologo, Dubuque, visitation 10 a.m. to noon, Saturday, February 11th, Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory, 2595 Rockdale Road, service noon, Saturday at the funeral home, Barbara L. Fisher, Madison, Wisconsin, visitation 10 to 11, Saturday, February 11th, Christ Lutheran Church, Lancaster, Wisconsin, service 11 a.m. Saturday at the church. William Glasson, Galena, Illinois. Visitation, 10 a.m. to noon, Saturday, February 11th, Furlong Funeral Chapel, Galena. Service, noon, Saturday at the chapel. Maria Elena Guerrero, Dubuque. Celebration of life, 4 to 8 p.m. Friday, 
February 10th, Grand River Center Massive Christian Burial, 10.30 a.m., Saturday, February 11th, St. Patrick Catholic Church. Margaret A. Kirscher, Dubuque, visitation 4 to 7 p.m. today with a parish wake service at 6.30 p.m., Egelhoff, Seigert, and Casper Funeral Home and Crematory, 2569 John Kennedy Road, Massive Christian Burial, 10.30 a.m., Friday, February 10th, St. Columkill Catholic Church, Agnes H. Kloss, New Vienna, Iowa, visitation 9 to 10 a.m. today, Kramer Funeral Home, Dyersville, Iowa, Massive Christian Burial, 10.30 a.m. today, St. Boniface Catholic Church, New Vienna. Michael Klein, Verona, Wisconsin, visitation 10.30 a.m. Saturday, February 11th, St. Anthony Catholic Church, service 11 a.m. Saturday at the church. Joseph L. Lewis, Dickeyville, Wisconsin, visitation 4 to 7 p.m. today, Miller Funeral Home, East Dubuque, Illinois, service 11 a.m. Friday, February 10th, Mueller Memorial Chapel, Linwood Cemetery, Ronald C. Lofelhaus, Dubuque, visitation 11 a.m. to noon today, Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory, 2595 Rockdale Road, service noon today at the Funeral Home, James Manternach, Monticello, Iowa, visitation 9 to 11, Saturday, February 11th, Sacred Heart Catholic Church, Monticello, Massive Christian Burial, 11 a.m., Saturday at the church. William J. Meyer, Dubuque, visitation 5 to 7 today, Hoffman, Schneider, and Kitchen Funeral Home and Crematory, 3860 Asbury Road, Massive Christian Burial, 10.30 a.m., Friday, February 10th at St. Patrick Catholic Church. Norma J. Orton, Platteville, Wisconsin. Visitation 9 to 11, Saturday, February 11th. Melby Funeral Home and Crematory, Platteville. Service 11 a.m., Saturday at the Funeral Home. Maxine V. v. Parr, Dubuque. Visitation 9.15 to 10.15 a.m. today. Our Redeemer Lutheran Church service, 10.30 a.m. today at the church. Carol A. Rathiel, Earlville, Iowa, visitation 3 to 8 p.m. Friday, February 10th. Clifton Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service. Massive Christian Burial, 1 p.m. Saturday, February 11th at St. Joseph Catholic Church in Earlville. Jennifer L. Rue of Galena, visitation 5 to 7 p.m. today, Furlong Funeral Chapel, Galena, celebration of life, 7 p.m. to today at the funeral home, committal service noon, Friday, February 10th, St. Michael's Cemetery, Galena. Thomas F. Scholl, Dubuque, visitation 3 to 7 p.m. today, Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory, 24. 595 Rockdale Road, Massive Christian Burial, 10.30 a.m. Friday, February 10th, Holy Ghost Catholic Church. John Warland, Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin, Visitation, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Saturday, February 18th, Garrity Funeral Home Chapel, Prairie du Chien, 
service 1 p.m. February 18th at the funeral home. Stanley J. Wetter, Cuba City, Wisconsin, Parish Wake Service, 2.45 p.m. Friday, February 10th, Casey McNett Funeral Home and Cremation Services, Cuba City, Visitation 3 to 7 p.m. Friday at the Funeral Home and from 9 to 9.45 a.m. Saturday, February 11th, St. Rose of Lima Catholic Church, Cuba City, Mass of Christian Burial, 9.45 a.m., Saturday at the church. Jeanette Wicker, Footville, Wisconsin, service 6.30 p.m. today and 10.30 a.m. Friday, February 10th. Cincinnati Mound, Cincinnati, Wisconsin. We'll read a little from the sports section. Iowa girls begin treks to Des Moines. Marquette, Makokota, Valley tip-off postseason action in Class 1A. For two area girls basketball teams, the postseason begins tonight with action in Iowa Class 1A. Bellevue, Marquette, and Makokota Valley hope to make a run at a place that's become familiar destination for the two schools, Wells Fargo Arena in Des Moines. The Mohawks are eight-time state tournament qualifiers, including their most recent trip as semifinalists in 2020. The Wildcats have punched their ticket to state six times and were runners-up in 2021. First-round contests will be played tonight. The quarterfinals on February 14th, semifinals on February 17th, and regional finals on February 22nd. All games will begin at 7 p.m., Here's a capsule look at the Marquettes and Makokota Valley's Class 1A regional brackets. Region 3 schedule. First round, North Central North Cedar 1-19 at Bellevue Marquette, 14-7. Quarterfinals, North Cedar, Bellevue Marquette winners versus Clinton, Prince of Peace, 4-16. Kalamas, Wheatland, 7 to five. Winner, semifinals February 17th, regional final February 22nd. Outlook. This was a resurgent year after the Mohawks hovered around 0.500 the past two seasons, and no doubt they are determined to make a run. If Marquette can get past North Cedar tonight, it will likely set up a date with Cal Wheat which has beaten them twice this year. Marquette would also need to potentially upset number three ranked North Lynn, 19 to zero in the semis and 17 win Montezuma in the finals. Region four schedule first round central city four to 18 at Makokota Valley, 13 to nine quarterfinals central city, Makokota Valley winners versus West central six, to 15, Turkey Valley, 16 to 5, semifinals, February 17th, regional final, February 22nd. Outlook, Makokota Valley handily defeated Central City twice this season, so there's always that threat of a letdown performance, but the Wildcats take care of business as expected. A good Turkey Valley team most likely awaits in the quarterfinals, and 1A number 9 ranked Central El Cater would be a potential semifinal opponent. Number six ranked and undefeated West Fork is the heavy favorite 
to come out of the region's top half of the bracket. Hamlin makes a re- an appearance to receive Alan Page Award. Phoenix. DeMar Hamlin made a brief appearance appearance in Phoenix during Super Bowl week to receive the NFL PA's Alan Page Community Award. The Buffalo Bills safety received the award at the Phoenix Convention Center on Wednesday, a little over a month after he went into cardiac arrest and needed to be resuscitated on the field in Cincinnati. Quote, one of my favorite quotes, it's a blessing to be a blessing, end quote, Hamlin said, reading from a brief statement with his parents on stage with him. With that being said, I plan to never take this position for granted and always have an urgent approach to making a difference in the community where I come from and also in communities across the world. Hamlin was one of the five finalists for the Alan Page Award, which annually recognizes one player who goes above and beyond to perform community service in his team city and or hometown. His foundation received $100,000 with the award. He is not only an individual who has overcome a tremendous amount, he's not only a person who reminds us just how dangerous this game is, but also the spirit, the love, the joy, the fraternity of people who play this game. NFLPA Executive Director Demaris Smith said, In the nation and world, news in brief, Alec Baldwin wants prosecutor in onset death case dropped, Santa Fe, New Mexico. Defense attorneys for Alec Baldwin are seeking to disqualify the special prosecutor in the case against him stemming from the fatal shooting of a cinematographer on a New Mexico film set. In a motion filed Tuesday in Santa Fe-based district court, Baldwin's legal team said Andrea Reeb's position as a state lawmaker prohibits her under state law from holding any authority in a judicial capacity. Reeb is exercising either the executive power or the judicial power, and her continued service as a special prosecutor is unconstitutional, Baldwin's team argued in the motion. Reeb, a Republican, was elected to the State House of Representatives in November and started her term last month. The office of Santa Fe District Attorney Mary Carmack always dismissed the idea that Reeb would be disqualified. In a statement, the office characterized the motion as nothing but a legal diversion. Springsteen's fan magazine shutting down. New York, a magazine and website that has served Bruce Springsteen's fans for 43 years is shutting down with its with its publisher writing that he's been disillusioned by the debate over ticket prices for their hero's current tour. Backstreets has been an unusually robust publication that imposed journalistic rigor on its writing and photography while leaving no doubt of its fan worship. But the complaints about high ticket prices left people there dispirited, downhearted, and yes, disillusioned. Publisher Christopher Phillips wrote late last week in a post announcing the shutdown. Disappointment is a common feeling among the hardcore fans in the back streets community, he wrote. Phillips did not immediately return messages seeking comment. Springsteen's manager, John Landu, said that, 
quote, we are very sorry to hear the news of Backstreet's closing and want to thank Chris Phillips for his 30 years of dedication on behalf of Springsteen fans everywhere. In a new role, Sanders demands answers from Starbucks Schultz by Mary Claire Jolinek of the Associated Press, Washington. As Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders settles into his new role as chairman of the Senate committee that oversees health and labor issues, he says some corporations, quote, should be nervous, end quote. And the longtime liberal crusader's first target is Howard Schultz, the interim CEO of Starbucks, who has aggressively fought his workers' efforts to unionize. Sanders and the 10 other Democrats in the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee sent a letter to Schultz on Tuesday demanding he testify at a March 9th hearing on his company's compliance with federal labor laws. If Schultz ignores or refuses the request, Sanders said he's willing to use the committee's subpoena power to force him to appear. This is corporate greed, said Sanders, 81, who has run for president twice and spent a political lifetime fighting corporations and moneyed interests over policies that he said hurt the working class. Workers have a constitutional right to organize, and even if you are a large, multinational corporation owned by a billionaire, you don't have the right to violate the law. And we intend to be asking Mr. Schultz some very hard questions. Starbucks spokesman Andrew Troll said the company is reviewing the letter and, quote, we will continue our ongoing dialogue with key stakeholders, including the chairman's office, to offer clarifying information in reference to these issues, end quote. He did not say whether Schultz will appear. Sanders demanded for testimony from Schultz is an opening act in his new role as chairman of the HELP panel, which it has expansive jurisdiction over issues that have been central to his more than four decades in public service. And thanks to Democrats adding to a seat to the majority in last year's election, Sanders can fully exercise the oversight powers of the gavel and potentially issue subpoenas without Republican support. Sanders said he is not done challenging individual corporations, mentioning mentioning Amazon as another company he believes he has acted illegally against unions. And, quote, if you're a multinational pharmaceutical company that's been ripping off the American people and charging us outrageously high prices, you should be nervous because I'm going to hold you accountable, end quote, he said in an interview with the Associated Press on Tuesday, I'm going to do something about it. It's unclear how much he can accomplish in a divided Congress. While the committee will serve as a bully pulpit for the Senate's most famous progressive passing significant legislation through the Senate, not to mention the Republican-led House, will be a heavy to impossible lift over the next two years and finding areas of consensus will be a new test for the cantankerous far-left senator as he watched uneasily by the industries he regulates and members of his own committee from both parties. Sanders said he has, quote, two roles. One is chairman with 
a more realistic focus on results, and another promoting his signature issues like Medicare for All, tuition-free college, and paid childcare, among others. He said he plans to take his show on the road, doing a series of town halls, roundtables, and field hearings around the country. Next week, he'll hold a town hall inside the Capitol, bringing teachers, unions together to discuss teacher pay. 3.5 tons of cocaine found floating in Pacific Ocean, Wellington, New Zealand. New Zealand police said Wednesday they found more than three tons of cocaine floating in a remote part of the Pacific Ocean after it was dropped there by an international drug smuggling syndicate. New Zealand Police Commissioner Andrew Coster said the cocaine had been dropped at a floating transit point in 81 bales before it was intercepted by a Navy ship, which was deployed to the area last week. The ship then made the six-day trip back to New Zealand where the drugs were being documented and destroyed. Visitors can see Florence Baptistry's mosaics up close. Florence, Italy. Visitors to one of Florence's most iconic monuments, the Baptistery of St. San Giovanni, oppose the city's Duomo, are are getting a -a once-in-a-lifetime chance to see its ceiling mosaics up close thanks to an innovative approach to planned restoration effort. Rather than limit the public's access during the six-year cleaning of the vault, officials built a scaffolding platform for the art restorers that will also allow small numbers of visitors to see the ceiling mosaics at eye level. We had to turn this occasion into an opportunity to make it even more accessible and usable by the public through special routes that would bring visitors into direct contact with the mosaics. Samuel Cagliani, the architect in charge of the restoration site, said, United Airlines turns around after a fire in the cabin in San Diego. A fire on board a New Jersey-bound United Airlines plane prompted its return to San Diego International Airport, and four people were taken to a hospital for treatment for smoke inhalation, authorities said. Flight 2664 was heading to Newark Liberty International Airport in New Jersey when a passenger's external battery pack caught fire shortly after takeoff Tuesday morning, authorities said. Passenger Caroline Lipinski told KFMB-TV that a few minutes after takeoff, a bag belonging to a first-class passenger began smoking. He threw something on the ground, and it was a battery charger pack or something from his laptop. It burst into fire, she said. There was smoke in the cabin. I was terrified, she said. Passenger Stevens. Jones said some passengers were gasping, screaming, while flight attendants grabbed fire extinguishers and ran into the front of the plane. The crew placed the battery in a special fire bag, which prevented it from spreading, and the Boeing 737 returned safely to the airport around 7.30 a.m. Four passengers were treated for smoke inhalation at the hospital, U.S. San Diego Health said in a statement. IEA, Asia on pace to use half of world's electricity by 2025. 
Berlin. Asia will be for the first time use half of the world's electricity by 2025, even as Africa continues to consume far less than its share of the global population, according to a new forecast released Wednesday by the International Energy Agency. Much of Asia's electricity will be in China, a nation of 1.4 billion people whose share of global consumption will rise from a quarter in 2015 to a third by the middle of this decade, the Paris-based body said. China will be consuming more electricity than the European Union, United States, and India combined, said Kusuki Satomori of the IEA's Director of Energy, Markets, and Security. By contrast, Africa, home to almost a fifth of of world's nearly 8 billion inhabitants, will account for just 3% of global electricity consumption in 2025. The IEA's annual report predicts that nuclear power and renewable Renewables, such as wind and solar, will account for much of the growth in global electricity supply over the coming three years. This will prevent a significant rise in greenhouse gas emissions from the power sector, it said. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. I'm your reader, Ann Coke Gare. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.